This is week seven of eight. And then we go to 2 Samuel. The good news just keeps coming as we talk about the gospel. So let me just kind of review to show you the flow of where we've been. You can look at the words on the bottom of the screen to kind of help you keep along. But our God, he's old. He's new. He's everlasting. He's wise. He's good. He's pure. He's all-powerful. He's holy, 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 transcendent like none other. And we're at our best when we're awestruck before him. He created us in his image to glorify and enjoy him. And he gave us his instructions, his wonderful counsel, his precepts, his prescriptions, his commandments, his laws. They're good. They're gracious. The best way possible for us. With that comes his contract. I With the family of Adam and Eve, God came up and he said this, if you take my law and if you obey them perfectly, I, God, promise to reward you for your obedience with blessings that can't be numbered. But if you rebel, or even if you obey imperfectly, I will give you what you deserve, the wages of sin or death and damnation. God, the awesome God, gave us his law gave us his contract. How did man respond? Not well. Adam and Eve and our entire family, that's us, we proved to be those who follow the course of this world, following the prince that is at work, the power of the air that's at work in the world, doing what we want in Ephesians language. And what happens is our first parents fell, they dishonored God, they devalued what he said, they didn't care about his warning, They followed the lead of Satan. They sinned. They fell. And now we are all born warped. We are born with this disease that came from our first parents. And we can't help it. But the sin that is within just leaks out in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. Consequently, we have hell to pay. The good news, though, is not that. The good news of the gospel is not what you have done, can do, or will do. The good news is all about how God and how he chose to perform for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Jesus, that son, came. He lived and earned our righteousness. He was ready to give it to us. He died and took all of our debt upon himself. So that now there is no more righteousness that we have to accrue. None. Our cup is already flowing over with more than sufficient righteousness that comes from Christ. And now there is not a smidgen of condemnation or judgment to pay for. Because Jesus paid it all. His death, his life gave us a gift that was full, finished, and free. So therefore... How do you get it? How do you know if you got it? Real simple. Repenting faith. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, anyone who turns from Satan, turns from sin, turns from idolatry, turns from self-worship, anyone who turns from self-justification, self-defense, or self-righteousness, 
and then turns to Jesus and says, I want your righteousness and I want reconciliation from you and I'm ready to follow you as my leader and my Lord. This is gorgeous. This all happens on the inside. And if that's what you did and that's who you are, people who just keep having repenting faith, that doesn't come on your own. It's the gift of God and you can rejoice that the gospel is for you. So now, in Christ, who are we? Well, it's a little bit complicated. We are born again. We are new creations. We are slaves of righteousness. We are servants of the Most High God. It gets better. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We get to call ourselves the friends of God because God is our friend, and Jesus is the friend of sinners. Oh, it gets better. We get to be uh, sons and daughters of the Most High. We get to be the bride of Christ. We get to be the temple, the holy of holies, in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And forever and ever, we are his ambassadors, his priests, his disciples, his saints. We have been sainted. We have been sanctified. We have been consecrated, set apart. He's taken that which is common and has declared us holy and set us apart for his purpose. That's who we are. But that's not all who we are. He could have taken away our sin nature. He will one day take away our sin nature, and he has not taken away our sin nature. In Romans 7 language, we are still struggling with the old man, the old nature, the old heart, the old flesh. They call it indwelling sin or the inner life. It's there. We know it's there. It keeps showing its ugly head. And for the rest of our days, we walk forward in joyful confidence knowing the Holy Spirit dwells within. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can't get better. And yet... We still have a wretched daily battle. So we are sinner saints until the day that we see Jesus face to face and our salvation is finished. Glory is there. The holy war is over. And we will be sinners no more. That's where we're going next week in paradise. But for now, how then shall we live? We're just supposed to sit back and enjoy it? Or are we supposed to work? That's where I want to take you now. I could have taken you to many, many passages, but I've chosen to preach this week from Luke 22, a very famous passage of Scripture. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again or repented, that's one of the words that is used for repentance. But when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. 
Peter had foes outside him, without him. I mean, the devil has always been against Jesus and his people, whether they be the Old Testament bunch or the New Testament bunch. And the Antichrists were everywhere in this day and age. You had the priests and the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Herodians all gathered together with some Romans and the Jewish populace as they're seeking to squelch out this Jesus revolution thing that is happening. Jesus sees it. He knows it. He's experienced it. The disciples are sitting back with big eyes wondering what in the world's going on. Jesus isn't surprised. He came into the world to be the king of kings, but he came into the world to be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and with suffering. He's tried to tell the fellas, it's going to go bad. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to the cross. They're starting to understand, so much so that when Jesus finally says, men, it's time to go to Jerusalem, one of them looks and says, well, let's just all go and die together. In Jerusalem, they see the opposition. Jesus gathers them together around the Lord's table. And at that night, he tells them again, it's going bad. It's going bad soon. This is the week. He outs Judas. And then after partaking of the Lord's Supper, singing a hymn, knowing the hour had come, he tells his men to get up, and they go on this walk towards the Garden of Gethsemane. As they're walking there, Jesus says something that is found in Matthew's gospel. He looks at them and he says this, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus made it clear. My enemies are your enemies. The world hates me. The world hates you. They're coming to get us and you guys are taken off. You're scattering. Peter's not quite so sure. We'll talk about that in a second. A little further down the road, maybe, Jesus looked and he said the following words, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Simon, there is not only natural foe, but there's a supernatural foe. There's the world and there's the devil. And the devil, he hates me. He can't touch me. He tried. But he's coming after my people. And he has prayed, supplicated, interceded, demanded that he have you, that he have you in his hand, that he crush you and destroy you like wheat. He wants to go at you, just like he had to go at Adam, or like he has, is having a go with Judas right now. Jesus makes it very, very clear. Peter, you got foes. Some of them are natural. Some of them are supernatural. But then he continues, Peter, you've got friends. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have good intentions for Jesus', for Jesus people, for the disciples. But especially Jesus. Jesus, in effect, is saying, I've got your back. For while Satan was praying, demanding that he have you, I was praying for you. I was your prayer warrior, your intercessor, your priest. I was talking to God about you while Satan was wanting to have his way with you. Peter had a friend. And he says, I have prayed for you that when that your faith may not fail. 
So at this point, what does Peter know? Peter knows I'm with Jesus, Jesus is with me, but we got foes. Those, those enemies are the world, those enemies are the devil, but I've got Jesus on my side and he prays for me. At this point, everything's looking pretty good, isn't it? Peter, feeling pretty bold, looks at Jesus and he says the following. Though everyone gets scattered, not me. You got my back? I've got yours. He looked and he said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. A third statement, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. This is good stuff, isn't it? We've got a disciple of Christ chosen from the foundation of the world, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, beloved with Jesus, swearing allegiance. Why is he saying these things? Because he really does have a legitimate faith within him. God has done good work in the soul of Peter. He's a born-again, regenerated man, repenting, having faith. He's saved sanctified, a true believer, a man of faith, real, legitimate faith. And he's not just a big talker. Peter has shown us that the faith within has manifested itself in a faithfulness without. This is what happens. We repent and we see the fruits of repentance. We believe and we have faith and then we start walking in faithfulness. We do not believe that we have a dead faith, but the faith that is without works starts showing itself as it works its way out. This is Peter. He's not your half-hearted, fair-weather worshiper. He has the root and he has the fruit. He loves Jesus and seeks to keep his commandments. So from the inside out, is Peter now saying, well, who cares if everyone else falls? Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Shall we now continue in sin? No, Peter's going, God forbid. No way. I'm not falling. He's serious. He's sincere. But Peter has a problem. We've already talked about outside Pete. There's the world, and there's the devil. But the greatest problem we have in living the Christian life is not outside us. The greatest problem we have is the flesh within. Peter has struggled with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Within him is that indwelling sin, the old inner self, or his fleshly default mode. And because of this, short story, Peter falls hard. Oh, he stands tall because he means to stand tall, because he wants to stand tall. And they come at him in the garden, and he pulls out that sword, and he starts swinging. But he didn't persevere. He fell fast, far, repeatedly, and publicly. Fast. From swinging the sword to running for the hills. Far. From running to the hills to being before the girl saying, I don't even know him. Repeatedly, 
I don't even know him. I swear I don't know him. I swear, I really swear, I don't know him publicly. At the campfire, in the courtyard, while Jesus is watching, while other people are watching, we're still talking about it to that day. A saint. A sinner saint. Falling fast, far, repeatedly, and publicly on the outside because of his failures on the inside. He has too little faith and too much disbelief. Too little faith and too much fear. Too little love for God. Too much love for himself. But thankfully, Peter knows the friend of sinners, and he learns what he is to do after his hard fall. I want to read this to you again, and I want you to listen to the promise and the command. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that's the promise. Strengthen your brothers. That's the command. That's how we get to our sermon today. What am I calling you to do? What do I think Christ is calling us to do as sinner saints? Just keep turning and strengthening. Keep repenting and doing fruits of repentance. Keep being saved by the works of Jesus and then do your own works. Keep trusting in him by faith and then walking faithfully. Keep being a saint and then walking saintly. Put on the robe of Christ and start smelling like Jesus. Stand in the light and start radiating his power. This is what happens. Be filled with the Spirit and start walking in the Spirit. How many more uh, examples do you need? This is what he sees. Jesus hates sin. He can't stand it. He sees it coming. It's not okay. He's going to be damned for Peter's sin. But he's not surprised by it. And he's not surprised by your sin and mine. He sees all the sin of his saints, even the best of his saints, have horrible sin. He sees it coming. But Jesus promises, I will never lose one. I will go and get one of my sheep that is missing. There's nothing that can separate them from my love. And I'm promising you, Pete, you're going to fall. You're going to fall tonight before the night's over. but I'm promising you, you're going to turn. I will not leave you alone. I will disciple you. I will discipline you. I will chase after you. I will grace you until you turn on the inside. And when you turn, when that revival work is done, which is the work of the Holy Spirit on the inside, that's when you're to go to work. That's when you're to do something. That's when you're to serve, love, obey, fight, sacrifice, put on, put off, perform, practice, walk in holiness, or worship. How long did it take Pete to get this? I think he had a couple bad days. But the Bible tells us that Jesus met with Peter in private on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. 
And I think Jesus' words to him then were the exact same words that he had said earlier. Pete, I know you. I know your sin. I love you. Turn. Come back. And let's go to work. And just in case there were legalistic folk around who had thought that he had maybe squandered his ability to serve the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus met with him again on another Lord's Day about a month later at the Sea of Galilee. And there in front of his friends, he gathers Peter around. And in effect, what does he say? Peter, I know you. I know your sin. I love you. Now let's go feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. We have work to do. And the rest is history. So now you put the pieces together, and where am I trying to take you? Like Peter, we have all received gospel gifts. I hope all of us have. We've had our names written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ came for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He went to heaven. Then he sent his Holy Spirit. He preached to us. He invited us to come. We wouldn't come on our own. The Holy Spirit then went to work and gave us the gifts of faith and repentance. All of a sudden, that revival happened as he turned us on the inside around, and we now believed. We now repented. We now trusted. We are men and women of faith. We were united to Christ. We were justified. We were adopted. We were filled by the Holy Spirit. This is what he's done. And now we are his servants and his saints and his bride and all those things I mentioned earlier. This really is true. And we are people at war. We have heathen foe about us. And I, by nature, give people the benefit of the doubt and then the eternal optimist who is a fool. They hate Jesus. And they hate us too. And outside of us are not only our heathen foe who hate us, even if we love them, there's a hellish foe. There really is this thing of a spiritual warfare going on that we're supposed to understand even though we don't see. And Satan, I think, doesn't change. He would love to give it a go at seeing us fall away. But the greatest problem we have is within. We still have that part that Jesus didn't have because the devil and the world came after Jesus, but he was never, he was tempted as we were, yet without sin. But we, in the words of James, are tempted from without, and we've got this magnet on the inside that just draws it in, and we love it. And so now we have this war. We are sinner saints at war. And like Peter, out of nowhere, we find ourselves falling fast, farther than we ever imagined, repeatedly, and sometimes publicly. I had a Peter moment this week. My elders are now going, oh, no, what's he getting ready to talk about? <laughs> Laura's not quite so worried as she was the first service. I want to evangelize. You hear me pray about it. I talk about it. I invite people to come. I'm going to do it again probably today. I'm kind of an extrovert, and I want to 
figure out ways to weave the gospel in conversations. And Friday, I was doing a doubleheader soccer game at uh, Hannah High School down in Anderson. And there I was with a, a fellow official that I didn't know well, who's a student at Clemson. And as we're talking, I'm going to figure out between games how to share the gospel. Joe Cool is going to slide it in there somehow. So as I'm doing my thing, having conversations, where you work, what are you doing, where's your next job, I figure out a way to let him know I'm a pastor, and then I ask him, are you religious or not really? See, I'm so cool the way I ask those questions. And, no, not really. I'm game on. Yeah, I wouldn't be either if I believed a lot of the stuff out there, I told him, because now, see, I'm cool. I'm identifying with him. I mean, there's a lot of junk out there in churches and Man, I hope I'm not like those guys. I, I really try to believe the Bible differently than a lot of things, and I'm, I'm working it. I mean, you can give me a thumbs up at this point. I'm between games trying to do evangelism, trying to, to do what I want you to do as we're sharing Christ, maybe thinking he'll sit here in one of these chairs one day. And then he goes, yeah, I really haven't gone to school, to church since I was back in high school. I'm like, oh, yeah, really? Yeah, I, I think I had one of them bad pastors. I'm I'm sorry, bud. Yeah, he goes, uh, that guy told me I was like a sinner and that everybody is going to hell unless they know Jesus. And I think I just had a bad experience. You know what I said? Nothing. I had a Peter moment. I, I'm not proud of it. Just nodded my head and said, yeah. What in the world? You expect more than that from me. I expect more than that from me. Why did I start the, the conversation? Because there's something in me that wanted to see him come to Christ. Really? Why did I have a Peter moment? I think I didn't want to be offensive. I wanted to finish the second game without being weird. I didn't love my Christ as I should. I didn't love him like I should. What do you do when you find yourself with that flesh sneaking up on you and you're falling faster than you ever dreamed possible? Or maybe you're repeating it and this is something that you've been doing for years and you haven't found rescue. Or maybe your sin is public and people look at you as like, yep, we know that guy, that girl. We remember that we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The one who looks at Peter and says, I know you. I know your sin. And I love you. Let's turn and worship. And that is the big idea of the text that I wanted to convey to you. And I could just go throughout the whole Old Testament and show you that this is what Christians do. They turn on the inside and serve on the outside. They turn on the inside and strengthen on the outside. They turn on the inside and they work on the outside. This is what Christianity looks like. Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, taught their children how to sacrifice. Abraham harmed Sarah, ran to Sarah, repented, built an altar, and tried to have more children. Rahab, after selling her body, ran to the God of Israel and joined his worshiping community. David, after murdering Uriah, reconciled with God, repented with Bathsheba, and then wrote psalms about how to rejoice in the Lord. 
Samson, after marrying Delilah, called out to God, asked for strength, used it for his purposes, and went out with a bang. Zacchaeus, after stealing men's wealth, turned on the inside, ate with Jesus, and then used his wealth to love his neighbors properly. Saul, after blaspheming Jesus, turned on the inside, spent his days as a missionary. And I can take you to Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, and I can tell you about the seven letters written to the seven churches of Asia, where God comes to them and says, remember, repent, and recover, where God writes almost all of those letters. And he starts the first part of the letter off by saying, this is the promise. Believe, repent, turn. And then the next half of the letter, almost all of them go from the indicative to the imperative. Now, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is where we see in all these letters, and I, could, I can go through this with you verb after verb if we only had more time making it our aim to please God, seeking first the kingdom of God, being holy as he is holy, adding works to our faith, praying without ceasing, meditating on God's word day and night, growing in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man, keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping all and observing all that Christ has commanded us, avoiding all those sins that are really bad that are on Paul's sin lists or the ones that are found in the book of Revelation, characteristic of those who go to hell. Trying to see more fruit of the Holy Spirit, putting to death sin, making no provision for the lust of the flesh, fleeing youthful lust, looking good on the inside and the outside, not even having a hint of immorality, growing in knowledge and grace and taking every thought captive, putting on the gospel armor, and I can just keep going. Yes! There are imperatives. Yes, he means them. They're serious. It's his law. It's gracious. It's good. It's wise. It's serious. It's expected. And we should be optimistic. Why should we be optimistic? We should be optimistic because we have God the Father predestinating us for holiness, which Bill just read to you earlier. We have the Holy Spirit moving in empowering us, fruiting us. We have Jesus Christ promising to finish that which he begins. We know that good fruit will come from good trees. We know that we are being transformed by the Spirit into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We know that we will be one day perfectly sanctified because he will do it. And so therefore, what am I saying? Receive the gospel. Repent on the inside. Believe. Turn. And then do the next right thing. Use your spiritual gifts. Use your story. Be the sinner saint who goes on the mission field. Fight. Love. Obey. Perform. Give it a good shot. Go at it. Take it seriously. Outwork one another. Outdo one another in love. Be radical in your desire to obey. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or something else, do it all for the glory of God. 
We've been created to enjoy and glorify Him. So now, any time again, someone looks at you and says, your pastor believes so much in grace that he doesn't expect you to be holy? Stand up for me and say, absolutely not. Say no to Satan's lies in your head that you have sinned away your opportunity to serve. Say no to the legalistic lies of your brothers and sisters around you who want to keep you in a corner somewhere because of some horrible sin. And say no to your antinomian brothers if you've got them. Those people who are saying we have now been saved from the law and no longer are we needing to, to walk again in the wonderful counsel of our God. This is what we've been created to do. Lawfulness is Christ-likeness. And we are being conformed to the image of Christ. So what do we do? We repent. We believe. We turn on the inside, which is all the working of the Holy Spirit. And then we walk in the Spirit. Seek not to walk in the flesh. We place ourselves in the trees like Zacchaeus did. In the place where Jesus came, we place ourselves in the trees of our means of grace. We come to worship and we read the scriptures and we pray. Those places where Jesus quite often visits us. And we can't wait for he who began a good work in us to finish it. Do I believe in works? Not when you apply it to your being, but, but because who you be, that affects what you do. And so we are now Christians who love doing good works zealously and will keep repenting and turning and going back out and strengthening our brothers.